Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Hey, these are heady times for technology investors. I've been called the Uber of Thinkfluence, an Airbnb for storytelling. The IPO market is that hot. Tents in the back of vans in San Francisco are renting for five grand a month. Facebook is worth $305 billion. Amazon, at an all-time high, now worth $320 billion, which is well north of what Walmart is fetching. Afternoon delight? Just swipe right. So then what better time to talk to an in-demand venture capitalist? Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. And you will certainly see me there four, five, six times a week, partaking in the hot breakfast bar, eating at the beat. Visit them in Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. And by Health Warrior, a local Richmond brand that is one of the fastest growing national food companies. Health Warrior, makers of chia bars, make snack food powerful by using superfoods as the first ingredient. The first product they put out, the Health Warrior Chia Bar, I adore. I must eat six or seven of the mango and apple cinnamon varieties every week. Highly recommended. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. Joining us from San Francisco is Mamoon Hamid, co-founder and general partner of VC shop Social Capital. He's invested in Yelp, Box, and Yammer. Women adore him. Men envy him. Google his mug. And you, too, will be mesmerized. Mr. Hamid, how are you? I'm doing great, Robin. Good to talk to you. Was there any misrepresentation in, in, in the top of this show that I just, the aforementioned? No. Well, the, the women part, perhaps. Hey, I, I invited people to judge for themselves to actually Google it. I will say this. Everybody should know, in the interest of full disclosure, I met Mamoon at Harvard Business School. We started in 2003. He uh, joins as a veteran of Xilinx, the semiconductor firm. And I always looked at him as a high-tech person. But he had this dream to come to Harvard Business School and reinvent into a venture capitalist. And now he is on the lips of all these people in Silicon Valley. I believe you've been profiled in, in Business Week. Is that right? Uh, a few years ago, yes, our firm was profiled. Uh, you've given a TEDx speech in Purdue, your alma mater. So uh, the dream is achieved, sir, substantially, and there's much more to do. Yeah, so far from it, Robin. I think a lot of the work <laughs> is ahead of us. Well, we want to we want to unpack some of this actually biographically for the people out there, for the many students that you speak to. I, I know you must get in your inbox every week. You know, advice. Can you help me out? People from Purdue, people from HBS, people from, you know, uh, who met you at the, the Indian restaurant that you had a part ownership stake in, <laughs> you know, eight, nine years ago. Uh, you've crossed paths with a lot of people out there. Tell us, you know, what really, if you could have a conversation with yourself in 2005 when you first entered the great wide open of venture capital, what would you have told yourself back then? You know, I would have told myself, you know, you don't know anything. And I didn't know anything in 2005 about venture capital when I got my first job uh, as a low on the totem pole guy at a well-established firm that had uh, made its name investing in great companies like Amgen and Sun Microsystems. And who was I to come in and help them make investments in the next generation of great companies? So um, 
I told myself, just learn and listen and be mentored, if that's even possible, by some of these legendary investors that were at that firm. But this is, we remember at business school that this is the, I mean, this is like the creme de la creme job description. You, you know, venture capital, you're a, you're a jack of all trades. People come to you, you're looked at as a rainmaker. You're looked at as an innovator, as a person who, um, uh, you know, reallocates money, uh, takes risks, goes out there, uh, looks in the wide of eye of, 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 of people out there with the next Facebook or the next big project and doubles down and holds their hand through a very difficult process, joins boards, knows where to cut losses. Uh, it was a very hard vetting process. I remember all the professors telling me, so you want to be a venture capitalist. You know how high the failure rate is. So what hit you right after graduation? You just show up at, was it U.S. Venture Partners? And you decided to keep your head down and just study? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, venture capital is not as glitzy and glamorous as it sounds. And there's a lot of roll up your sleeves, a lot of grinding it out with the entrepreneurs that you're investing with. So, but let's just go back to 2005 when I joined US Venture Partners. Really that the notion of actually going into venture capital, and you're right, uh, I went to, to Harvard Business School to, with this notion that I could actually get into venture capital because I looked at the resumes of you know, legends like John Doerr and Tim Draper and said, whoa, these guys studied electrical engineering as undergrads. That's where I studied. Uh, well, and they went to Harvard Business School. I guess I need to go to Harvard Business School to go to venture capital. So that's precisely why I applied to Harvard Business School in 2003 when I was, you know, this this electrical engineer working at Xilinx, um, you know, helping our chips get into, you know, into plasma televisions and car infotainment systems. Uh, I had not known anyone actually who had gone to Harvard Business School. So for me, it was just, well, if I want to do this thing called venture capital, uh, I probably should apply and go. Otherwise, I probably have no chance. So it goes back even way beyond that. Um, my Silicon Valley career started right out of college in 1997. I was recruited to come work at this company, Xilinx, which was right at the beginning of the or the midpoint of the dot-com boom. Yeah, the dot-com and telecom boom. Yeah, it was just happening in Xilinx, actually. 90% of revenues came from networking telecom companies like Lucent and Cisco and, you know, all the companies that you know were worth hundreds of billions of dollars and on the backs of which the the networking gear, uh, on the backs of which all these dot-coms were built and, you know, the the shovel economy was built on and the, the bust happened because, you know, all these companies that were raising all yeah, the capital. For our, for our listeners, it was a spec spectacular bust. I think $2 trillion of, of market cap was erased. Very few people talk about the telecom bubble, but between 1999 and 2002, it was savage. I mean, the NASDAQ fell from 5,000 to, I think, 1,000. It's back up against five, up a t above 5,000, but it took almost 15 years for that to recover. Uh, there was this expectation. I mean, people really got ahead of themselves in thinking, we're building the broadband kingdom, and uh, we're going to, uh, Global Crossing is going to put wires on the seafloor, and everybody's going to be connected. And then it just went splat. Absolutely right. And that's the, as a 19-year-old kid who's moved to Silicon Valley, living through that, I had no you know, baseline of what was going on. So I was just, again, sort of heads down, like, okay, I guess this is how Silicon Valley works. You, you, uh, you know, you, these companies get built up on, because they're selling picks and shovels to these other companies. And, uh, and it was a little bit like, you know, you, you probably recall the times of talking about the tulip bubble 
from the 1600s in, in, in Holland in, in, in Netherlands. And so uh, it was that kind of time that I actually grew up in and I became an adult. You know, I, I came to Silicon Valley when I was 19 years old. So I literally, you know, barely with a driver's license in hand, working as an electrical engineer at a company like Xilinx that was selling about 90% of its revenues were going uh, coming from networking and telecom companies that were, you know, then selling, shilling their gear to to the, uh, you know, CMGIs and the Global Crossings and the, uh, you know, remember those guys uh, for uh, who, who whose stock went up a thousand percent on the day of the IPO? I think the, the, the Globe.com. The Globe.com. I was there. I was working in the brokerage business and watching all this stuff. And yeah, my gosh, you, you were you were tempted to think it could continue forever. So did you personally lose a lot of paper wealth with Xilinx? I did. Yeah. I, as a pretty young kid, you know, my stock options went from, you know, they were worth seven figures at one point and uh, I had no clue like that I could ever be worth that much so quickly. And I obviously it all went away very quickly as well. Uh, I do remember the day that I sold my vertical net stock. Do you remember that stock? Oh yes, of course. Yeah. I sold it to, to buy my first car. I bought a brand new Audi A4 so I could go snowboarding in Tahoe. And I felt like I'd made it. So that was uh, that was the era that I lived through. That was like my formative years of Silicon Valley. Yeah, and then by 2002 is when things bottomed out. In 2003, it starts recovering, and we start uh, business school. And they always taught us in our introduction to entrepreneurship. I remember, I think it was Professor Noam Wasserman, that uh, VCs were... You, you as a as a person who was starting a business, should be hugely skeptical of taking VC money. Uh, the the handful of people in the section in the class that had experience going through rounds of financing, Series A, Series B, everything. They said these guys are are um, snakes. They're savages. They'll bite your head off. You know, they're looking to just rip out equity at a very attractive valuation and uh, fire you the first chance they get. <laughs> That was the impression yeah. a lot of us on the outside got. And uh, did you find any was that any of that was true? Well, you know, it, it was true to some extent because all those people who joined VC in the late '90s, in the the boom cycle, and then they experienced the bust. Uh, they were, were they were the guys coming out of Harvard Business School and other business schools in the late '90s or mid '90s with this dream of like, oh, VC is where all this fast money can be made. So you had all these finance and consulting types who had no like love for technology and the what technology can do for the world, they were rather in it to, they were finance type who were like, hey, how are we going to make a quick buck? And, uh, you know, and that kind of mentality crept into the, the world of VC, which uh, historically had been truly the pioneers of VC were, you know, the, the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, which went on to you know, become the founders of lots of other semiconductor companies in Silicon Valley, and hence the name Silicon Valley. Uh, and they came as they were technologists. They were, you know, the Andy Groves. They were the Gordon Moores of the world. Um, they were the Pierre Lamonts and the Erwin Fettermans, who genuinely had the love for technology. And they were, you know, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. They were part of the, you know, the uh, emergence of the microprocessor and the networking uh, world, and and then the software that lived on top of it. So it went from a the V1 of VC was this sort of very pure like technologists who came in who wanted to further promote technology and fund these next generation of businesses, which once you fast forward it to 1995, 96, 97, it was a bunch of people who now viewed it as an asset class who were money managers 
who thought that they could get into this asset class and invest dollars from endowments and from uh, hospitals and other uh, limited partners and uh, make a nice return, an IRR. And so that leads to what you were saying about our professor, Noam Wasserman, who would say, these guys are sharks and they're going to try to eat you. Well, at the first chance you don't deliver, you're, you're going to get fired and they're going to take up 75% of your company. So that sort of became true because it was like finance uh, VCs or vulture capitalists as they, they became endearingly uh, to be known as. Uh, and that we did go through that phase. And if you look back at sort of 2003, four, five, uh, a lot of these firms were not doing well because they'd lost all this paper wealth investing in networking and telecom companies. Lost, and there was a there was a said. die out. There was a die out. A lot of you know what's interesting is a lot of real estate firms in San Francisco took equity from companies that was worthless. I mean, it was truly a bubble of of monumental proportions. And you look at that today, and you see this new term which is being thrown about daily in the valley: unicorns. Tell us what unicorns are. A unicorn is simply a company that is worth a billion dollars or more on the private markets. So in effect, they've raised money from private investors that values the company at a billion or more. And it could be, you know, you've raised $25 million at a you know, valuation of $975 million. So your post money valuation is a billion dollars. Um, and uh, but many companies raise a lot more capital than that uh, along the way from, you know, being valued at s sub 10 million to sub 100 million to at some point a billion. And there's probably, I would say, on the order of 150 unicorns. So these are private companies valued at more than a billion dollars or more. Um, and that number has sort of skyrocketed over the last you know, three years. There's uh, the number of unicorns created every quarter uh, seems to double, triple, quadruple from like two to three years ago. Why aren't the venture capitalists behind these concepts pushing for them to go public if the lesson of, of uh, 2002 and 2008 was that the window is only open for so long for you to sell shares to public investors list like like Square, the, uh, you know, the credit card reader did this week? Yeah, being public is is not for, for kids, you know. It's, it's like there's a lot more... Uh, uh, transparency. Mamoon, tell us about Twitter. That was a blockbuster IPO when it happened, but in the you know several years since it's gone public, it seems to have had this this existential lull. Nobody knows what its reason for being is. There's management turmoil. Um, you know, it's one thing to go public or get the money if the market offers it to you. It's a whole other thing to to you know. You have to ask yourself: Should this company even be in the hands of public investors? Yeah, Twitter has had just a uh, roller coaster ride from. From the beginning of the the founding of the company to the how it even got funded to uh, it becoming a phenomenon, I would say in the 2008 elections, and then uh, the unprecedented growth from there, and then uh, then seeing uh, user growth level off. And as you know, in Silicon Valley, it's all about growth, and or for tech companies, it's all about growth. So, uh, and they've hit that existential crisis uh, because growth has fallen off to a point and uh, where it's no longer. A growth company and uh, engagement isn't there anymore. Uh, whereas you look at the the other company, Facebook continues to grow at unprecedented levels, uh, and engagement just continues to climb. And so all of that you look you you compare the two, and at one point I think the the delta between market caps was probably what you know Facebook post IPO versus Twitter 
uh, on the private market, there's probably a, a ratio of, let's say, I don't know, uh, one to five. And, and now it's like a, you know, Twitter's worth 20 billion, Facebook's worth 300. So it's, it's a one to 15 or so. Uh, so yeah, uh, Facebook is overperformed and uh, Twitter's underperformed. And a lot of it, as you know, in Silicon Valley, it has to do about the, the people that run these companies and the, the and also the you know engineers building the product and um, and you know in general morale's uh, kind of hit a low point, especially with the uncertainty around uh, being leaderless. And now, as you know, Jack's back at at the CEO in the CEO seat, not just the CEO of one company, but the CEO of two public companies, Square now as well. So uh, you know, perhaps there is hope to bring the the spiritual leader, Jack, you know, with the first tweet ever, uh, back into the seat and now, uh, sort of try to rebuild things. And, but you know, there's, there's no question that Twitter has changed the world. Um, I would say for, for the better. Uh, but I think it has the issue of like the lay person just doesn't have a use case, uh, for Twitter other than perhaps consuming. And they're not, um, you know, they're not sharing on Twitter. It's so, just not- so let's seize on this thought. Somebody comes to you with a great idea and it could indeed change the world, which is the clichéest of all, you know, Silicon Valley clichés. If you watch the show on HBO Silicon Valley, it's like, change the world, man, you know, uh, Mike Judge makes fun of it. But uh, you, you yourself as someone uh, with as a general partner and with your limited partners capital have to say, well, I may like it and it may sound great and it might be viral, but it might not make money. Right. But, you know, we are in the business of making sure that we are investing in businesses that were companies that eventually become businesses. You know, and, and maybe I could just tell you, like at Social Capital, our mission is just like in Mike Judge show is to transform society by using technology to solve the world's hardest problems. And you may laugh, Robin, but that's we are genuinely interested in only that. Uh, we think that technology is a, a leveler. It's a uniter. It's a force that can create equality and a level playing field for people from all walks of life. Uh, and it drives really genuinely everything that we do at Social Capital. And, uh, uh, and we believe that technology has not made a large enough difference in important areas like healthcare and education and financial services, you know, areas that are core part of society and ec- the economy. And, and these are also the areas that create social and economic inequality, uh, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. So, so we spend a lot of our time uh, investing our capital here. Um, and, and as you know, Robin, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. There's a lot of discord in the world. And uh, we'd like that to change. And we believe that technology can be part of that change. And, um, and I think technology now has become part of the mainstream, really. It's not just, uh, you know, nerds in Silicon Valley doing their thing. It's really like, you know, a, uh, and we have a framework around that in terms of like the arc of technology over the next 30 years and what it can do. And, you know, and, and it sort of brings me back to really from, you know, where I come from. I, you know, I, if I think about I grew up in Frankfurt, Germany, as you know, and if I think about the Syrian refugee kid who's now going to grow up in Frankfurt, Germany, does he or she have the same opportunities that m- my kids will growing up in Palo Alto? And uh, because I can relate to that. I, I was you know, born in Pakistan. I was, you know, I grew up in some Im- immigrant neighborhood in Frankfurt, Germany. And, you know, my parents stressed education and I fell in love with technology at a very early age, which uh, probably set me on the course that I'm on today. And so, 
So I'm kind of, in my mind, living proof in the power of technology. And so when, when we started Social Capital four years ago, you know, I was in my early to mid-30s and my partners uh, were as well. And so we looked at the, the world sort of 30 years ahead and we thought, where could we see this world go? And mm. uh, and that's what informs a lot of what we do on a day to day basis at so- sure. basis at social capital, uh, which is what what can technology do? So we have a core practice around healthcare and education and financial services. You know, generally, if you think about like historically, that's been areas where you know governments have played a much larger role, and we just think that technology and government specifically haven't played a, a great enough role. Uh, you know, changing things around, mixing things up, and so. Mm. We think we can play that role as sort of a, a for-profit justice league uh, in this ecosystem. And, you know, technology is here to stay, and it's going to be a pervasive part of our society. Sure. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you like this thought experiment that we've run at Social Capital, which is uh, you, you are a capital markets guy. And if you think about the S&P 500 and what percent of that today is in the hands of technology companies like Apple and Microsoft and Facebook, it's about – uh, 15 to 20 percent. So, and the S&P 500 is about 20 trillion dollars. So, roughly like three to four trillion is in the hands of technology companies. We believe that 30 years from now, that's going to be 50 percent of uh, of all of the market cap of the S&P 500. Sure. Full disclosure: My guest today, joining us from San Francisco, is Mamoon Hamid, co-founder and general partner of the venture capital shop Social Capital. Uh, I really want to. Uh, you know, pick your brain on some of the surprises that have happened over the last 10 years. And when you try to interpolate and project forward, for example, the iPhone, it was a pretty audacious thing. I remember when Steve Jobs came and visited the editors at Business Week and he, you know, it was, it was like a curiosity. Oh, how cute. He thinks he's gonna, you're going to be able to surf the web on, an, on, a, on a true browser. It's not like a BlackBerry browser, all these things. That's a person by dint of his sheer will that you know what I I I envision it and it's going to happen. Uh, you know, mediocre phone networks be damned. Just pushed it through. And similarly, you know, you look at other technologies. I mean, Google Google went public when we were in business school. It was a Dutch auction. I mean, that has completely sucked the revenue out of all manner of newspapers and uh, television properties. YouTube was a smashing success for them. Kind of what's left on the <laughs> put healthcare aside and everything. What's left for the world to kind of innovate? And I know that's you know it's almost like a straw man setting it up for you because people say that at any point in time. People said it in 1910. You know, can things get any better than they are right now? What do you what do you really see? For example, take me. What's going to be the standard smartphone in 10 years? What is it going to do? It's probably going to be embedded into your your ear or somewhere close to your mouth. It's you know. So what's next? You've got wearables, you've got virtual reality, augmented reality, eventually singularity. I mean, like there is so much to come, Robin, uh, and it's all ahead of us. I mean, could you have envisioned uh, Uber being worth $70 billion uh, even like two years ago? But there is one of those ideas that here, you know, and and again, I think about this a lot. Like, so the, the legend is Travis Kalanick and what his girlfriend or something sitting around in Paris, they can't take a cab. I'm sure other people have thought, why can't I, you know, geolocate and crowdsource a bunch of rides? But you would immediately be stopped by thinking, no, there's an entrenched taxicab commission in every city. There's no way I can do this. I mean, you almost have to kind of fake yourself out into believing it first. Yeah, and that's what makes Silicon Valley a bit special and different. It's just like you've got dreamers who are just not, just not even dreamers. They're actually builders, and there are other people like them who are 
who want to get onto that wagon and go crush the taxi industry and you know you know uh, and and disrupt things right and that's sort of what Silicon Valley's been always about and here you, now you have this mobile phone that now can open up the doors to the taxi industry the hotel industry uh, you pick your industry like the, the media industry content so everything now uh, is possible out of the palm of your hand and so well Steve Jobs created this for all of us gave us the opportunity Uber would not be worth 70 billion dollars if it wasn't for um, yeah but how would a VC if somebody came come to you with the idea for Uber let's say let's go back what 2010 2011 2009 what kind of holes would you have blown into it like let's let's role play for a minute like I come in yeah you know we could, it was New Year's Eve we could not catch a cab what would you have done as a VC like one yeah. they used to ask us show me the pain what is the pain okay the pain if I'm in Manhattan you know the biggest city in the United States I can't get a cab when it's raining I can't get a cab when it's getaway day and people want to go to the airport so uh, you're not supposed to be able to change that because cabs are entrenched there's a taxi licensing commission yeah so I actually was in San Francisco living in San Francisco when uber got started and you know I was probably one of the first users of Uber. And uh, in fact, we even looked at it as an investment uh, later on when it was still just the black car service. And we completely goofed that one up because, you know, we did actually view it as a black car service for wealthy San Franciscans to get who were lazy to get from point A to point B because they were too lazy to call a cab company or, you know, walk, you know, five blocks. And uh, or they needed a ride to the airport. They just were too socially awkward to pick up the phone and call a black car service or yeah. So typical San Francisco stuff is what we thought. Like, hey, you know, us lazy San Franciscans, we can't do the basic stuff of uh, what other people just do on a day-to-day -day basis, and we're, we're willing to pay a lot more money for it, for the convenience. Well, uh, it turns out this two-sided marketplace um, became bigger and bigger, and you added UberX to it. And drivers were people who were regular people who could just now, instead of working at a restaurant now, could just drive their like Honda yeah, Civic. well, break out the supply side and the demand side for me then. Was it kind of more of a liberating thing that what it did was allow people uh, self-determination, not just in booking a ride, but people who wanted to variableize their uh, income levels, right? We're still coming out of this great recession. There's a, a massive amount of unemployment and underemployment. And I don't know if he thought about that. I don't know if those guys, when they came up with this grand idea for Uber, like, yes, and 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 people will will jump at the chance to work on their own hours. You know, starving artists and students and 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 X Y Z. I mean, what I'm trying to say, Mamoon, is it takes it takes a. Uh, more, uh, you, you almost have to delude yourself. It's more than just conviction. It's like you have to fake it until you make it. And totally, and that's what it was for the first you know, couple of years. It was, you know, you had the wealthy, lazy San Franciscans and then uh, who were just getting a black car service from their phone. And then somehow or another, like you had this cheaper version, which now was going to be people who wanted to live in this more flexible uh, workers, that is drivers, who wanted to be 1099 workers uh, with uh, their primary job and then work at nights driving their Honda Civic around and making 25 bucks an hour, driving for four hours, making 100 bucks a night. And uh, and then, you know, people wanting to have a cheaper option or a better option to taxis, which actually are really terrible. In New York, you know, they're actually 
quite tolerable. San Francisco taxis have always been sure. Just yeah, you know, uh, the the three companies that run it and uh, no, they smell. There's always a cartel. There's you know the credit card machine doesn't work. Sometimes they force you to split rides. This gives you supreme control. I mean, the, the granularity. I can order an SUV with a car seat. It seems so obvious in hindsight, but again, you have to take several leaps of faith doing it. And ditto Airbnb. I mean, you've done a lot of traveling in your life. You've done a lot of international travel, and the hotel industry gets away with a lot of crap. You know, you walk in, and there's a sign on a bottle of Fiji water. This is yours for $10. This is the rack rate. You're charged like a 20% tax overall. Um, You know, it's just so ripe for disruption, and suddenly something like an Airbnb comes along. Yeah, and I think Airbnb would say, hey, you know, uh, the hotel companies are actually not our our foes. It's actually we're, you know, uh, a substitute for staying at friends' houses and at uh, families. You know, for going home for Thanksgiving, I don't want to stay at my my mom's place. I'd rather just get an Airbnb. And uh, but I, hey, like I, I'm sure that there's the substitute here is actually the hotel. And and now as a as a family guy, now I can appreciate an Airbnb over staying at a hotel. So uh, there's the taking away probably from the home away and the, you know, the property manager in Hawaii who has 10 properties who you don't want to deal with now and you just go through Airbnb to book the book the place. Uh, so there's definitely an element of uh, it being a substitute for various things plus also uh, other, uh, other pretty old school uh, ways of booking a home or a rental. Uh, and then obviously the hotel. And, and again, like, in 2007, eight, I think, or when Airbnb got going, uh, again, these guys, you know, uh, struggled to raise money. They struggled to uh, get anyone to believe that this was a real idea and a real company. And and you know, marketplaces are kind of can be pretty insane sometimes. When once they tip, uh, you know, and you become the de facto. Uh, way of of doing business for a consumer, uh, then you uh, accrete value exponentially, and so that that's been the case also for Airbnb, which is you know very quickly become you know it's now worth on the private markets somewhere on the order of twenty four billion, which is probably what it's not it's probably not worth that much, but you know again uh, private markets uh, have a way of uh, or investors who want to get into these hot companies. Uh, end up overpaying just so they can have a, a right to be part of these companies. And uh, at times, this also involves some structure, which in the case of the example of the Square IPO from last week, uh, there were some ratchets down to the IPO price that give them some downside protection. Uh, and I, I think in the case of Square, everybody you know made 20% or more. Sure. So, uh, so there is no risk in investing at these high valuations just because you have some downside protection, which is really still to make money. Now, what would you have done? I'd love, you know, the other darling there in Palo Alto that everybody talks about, they kind of worship at the altar of Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, which is now worth $30 billion. You know, if you're going into the situation in 2008 and 2009 and the GM bankruptcy and, and Chrysler needing a bailout and, you know, Ford becoming a uh, you know, a, a dollar or two dollar stock. If these guys needed another round of financing and came to you in 2008, I mean, what would you have said? It, it seems so beautiful in hindsight because he's executed so well and he's made something that has kind of transcended, you know, the, the green curiosity. It's more than just kind of a souped up Prius, uh, that it's aspirational now. It's a luxury thing. People want to drive up to red carpet events in it. Um, <laughs> 
what, what would you have done? I mean, if a car manufacturer came to you, I mean, gosh, you know, this thing had solvency issues. They bought a uh, an idled Toyota Pontiac factory in California and switched it on. And now you talk about changing the world. This guy's like solar megapack, solar cities, thinking about the Hyperloop. I mean, gosh, you talk about, uh, you know, a, a guy believing in himself and then having legions of followers. Yeah, you know, Elon's Iron Man. He's a special guy. Uh, I don't think there's, he's maybe an N of one out there. So, I, I mean, Tesla could have gone so many different ways, and most of those were south and into the ground to zero. And, uh, you know, they, they're probably one of the luckiest companies as well, and so is Elon. I mean, Elon was about to lose every single penny he'd ever made, including all the money he'd made from PayPal that he stuck into SpaceX and then you know, stuck whatever was left over into Tesla. And, and I'm not sure if you know this, but Elon was actually not the founder of Tesla. He was an investor in Tesla. And it was so mismanaged and it was so run so poorly that he at some point said, you know, guys, I'm going to take over because I think I can do this better than any of you fools. So he did. And he borrowed half a billion dollars from the government. And uh, this is around the time of the economic downturn in 2008 and nine. And at the same time, Toyota decided they were going to shutter a factory in Fremont here across the bay here for me. And, uh, you know, what a lucky moment for Tesla, which gave him a chance to actually uh, get a plant for mass production, which, you know, if it wasn't for uh, uh, it's called uh, uh, I forget the name of this called, but yeah, the, the Toyota factory that's across the bay here. Yeah, the Fremont, uh, the Fremont factory was it was making the Pontiac Aztec and the Toyota Matrix, right? Yeah. And Pontiac was was mothballed by GM, and who could see value in that? Like, you really have to be a contrarian investor, and you have to have the courage of your own convictions. It wasn't like he was a billionaire. He had he was part of what was called the PayPal mafia. Um, you know, he had money from this PayPal IPO way back in 2002, and eBay bought them. Um, some, I mean, you know, for me, from the kind of the, you know, from the cheap seats, uh, from a layperson's perspective, the audacity that a lot of people had. And he gave a talk that, you know, he had almost a nervous breakdown in 2008. At some point, they made him decide between his two babies, like, would I have to kill the solar company to leave Tesla afloat, or vice versa? And he just barely made it. And now, you know, to become the most aspirational car brand in America. Yeah, and and. Uh, it came back to me. It was called Numi, and it was. Uh, I think we even have a, had a business school case about Numi, uh, so I should probably know that. Uh, but yeah, it, it, there were so many lucky turns for 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 Tesla. Uh, I think least uh, biggest of which was actually this uh, Numi. And so Elon has a storied past of you know our our, our good friend uh, from business school, Jeremy Stoppelman of Yelp, used to work for Elon, and I remember him telling me like, yeah, my crazy boss, like he, he took all the money he just made off of uh, selling. Uh, PayPal to eBay, the 200 million or so that he made, he just put into a spacecraft. Uh, and I was like, this guy is crazy. This is a, like, I think I heard well, about What do you guys, do you guys call those moonshots in the VC vernacular? I mean, those are, you know, like kind of speculative plays, two outs, bottom of the ninth, you need a grand slam home run. I mean, there's a one in a thousand chance of it working out. If you as a venture capitalist are trying to plan a portfolio, you're looking for consistent kind of cash flow things potentially in a consistent exit and then maybe a moonshot possibility. Does a Tesla qualify as a moonshot? No, uh, I think Tesla qualifies like that's just you're just dumb to invest in a new type of car company. Wow. Um, and I think that's that's also um, uh, the issue with Silicon Valley today is that uh, there's a lot of 
playing it safe, and uh, we call it you know, you're, you're, we're now product market fit capital. At least we're, we don't try to be just that. There's not the risk taking that existed in the industry 20, 30 years ago. Uh, now everyone's looking for the obvious home run as opposed to, you know, taking being risk capital and, you know, uh, our cost of capital or, you know, when this is a very expensive source of capital. Uh, venture capital is, and explain so, that. Explain that because you, as a as a as a business that's starting up as an entrepreneur, you have to hand away. It's not like your soul or the keys to your life or anything, but a huge part of your equity, of your sweat equity in it. You're writing it away, and if you don't have leverage uh, in every progressive round of venture capital, they're going to take more of that equity away from you. Yeah. So when we invest in a company or venture capitalists invest in a company, you know. Uh, we write you a check for a few million dollars, and we take uh, you know a percentage of the company. Typically, in a uh, the first uh, round of a company, you're giving up anywhere from twenty to thirty percent of your company for X million dollars. And you know I can get into how we value these companies, but it's really like you know you you stick your finger in the air and you come up with a valuation based on whether it's a Series A or a Series B. And these are just notionally what we call the rounds. First, first round of a company when it's just getting going, to it has the product now and there's a team built out and it's actually selling in the market. That's the next round, and then you raise more money to grow and scale the company. And you know, uh, nominally, uh, companies have you know several rounds of funding, and each round further is raised once you've de-risked the company uh, a bit more. So uh, and you so you ra- you're raising all this equity capital and you're giving up substantial percentages of your company. And in many cases, entrepreneurs at the end of it are left with single digits of of their company. In terms they feel of they feel mugged a lot yeah. of times. Yeah, unless you're someone as shrewd as Mark Zuckerberg, and you you figure out that you know, like I'm gonna I'm gonna wear the pants in the relationship, and uh, I'm gonna structure the voting rights. And that's that's only if you come from a position of strength. And I would say Tesla wasn't in a position of strength for many years, and many companies are not. Um, but Facebook was mm. is an example. Google was an example of a company that was um, came from a position of strength. Uh, but in most cases, you know, you're not as much in a position of strength, and you 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 can you, you've got you know you're you're riding on uh, your your VCs to be kind to you, and uh, that's that's also uh, one of the the pieces of resentment probably that entrepreneurs feel towards the venture capital class. Yeah, it's uh, almost like a like a serf and a nobleman, you know, a landed landed gentry like you're, you know, <laughs> I'm dependent on you for my dreams and you keep diluting me and diluting me and in the end you want to fire me and replace me with a person who'll fast track you to an IPO, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's that world is changing because the 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 sources of capital are abundant now more than ever. There's now from especially even with the Jobs Act now you got you can go on to site like AngelList and raise capital there for your startup and you can have um, you know uh, Well yeah, hold, a, hold that thought because I want to ask you about it. Full disclosure, we are talking to Mamoon Hamid, star venture capitalist. He's co-founder and general partner of Social Capital in San Francisco. What what of that? I mean, they used to they they taught us in in venture capital courses about the dumb money, right? Your kind of dream of uh some oil man who just wants to be involved on a deal is like, you know, son, I'm gonna write you 15 million dollars handshake right here. We're pounding some beers. 
And uh, yeah, you know, just just th- think about me when you go public. Just give me some shares. We don't have to sign on it. Um, you know, that kind of deal where, you know, a person doesn't protect himself, no questions asked money. It seems like we are in a generation of that with with crowdfunding, um, kickstartering projects. I mean, a lot of projects that are just being prototyped on a, like an AutoCAD software you could suddenly raise a million dollars for on Kickstarter or GoFundMe. Yeah. So now, and there's a, another site called AngelList where... Uh, companies just post. This is my my company's deck and the product and my traction and you know you can invest in my company right here. Push of a button, right? And you've got uh, syndicates now on on Angelus where is there uh, is there anything where you could swipe right or swipe left? There probably is, Robin. And <laughs> if there isn't, we should try it. <laughs> we, we a- it. Angel Grinder, Angel Tinder, Angel Tinder. <laughs> so we've got to come up with a better name than that. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll think about it. Well, uh, so with the Jobs Act uh, in the last uh, what, eighteen months, two years ago now, you know, you know, just uh, that gentleman uh, who's a qualified investor from Texas can now invest in one of these startups, and there's the the limitation on the number of investors that startup could take on has has gone away. So so now you can have you know thousands of investors on the cap table, and and actually. Uh, if you've been following what Fidelity recently did, which is mark down its private portfolio by a lot, it's because you've got now these mutual funds that obviously are, it's money from you know uh, my aunt and my uncle and you know their kids uh, who now have exposure to to Snapchat uh, through the mutual fund that Fidelity is investing its uh, capital out of. So and the, the Jobs Act allows for all that uh, for all the lay people out there who didn't have exposure to couldn't have exposure to venture venture based companies. Uh, all these startups can now have exposure to the asset class. Well, I do want to switch you uh, to also what you're kind of seeing is like this uh, media bubblet of sorts, right? Uh, in, in this is in my field, it's very navel gazy, it's very internal looking. But the conventional wisdom is that media was killed. Um, and and online advertising, the pennies of online advertising could never hope to replace uh, the forever lost revenues of whole page newspaper and magazine ads. Uh, and yet you're seeing this explosion of explainer websites. You know, BuzzFeed seems to have, a, a, you know, a great model that's working for them internally. I don't know how much of it is advertising. Huffington Post sold for a pretty penny to uh, Verizon. Um, you know, AOL first and then Verizon. And then yeah. you see, what was it recently? Business Insider. We had Henry Blodgett on the show and yeah. Vox. And then you see all of these people Axel going Springer in. Bought them, right? Axel yeah. Springer. I thought it was Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses, but it turns out to be a German media firm. Um, what is what is the play in this? Are people buying this? This is what I really want to know. Are people looking to invest in media because of the, you know, the cash flows, the profitability, the margins up front, or the inherent promise of an enterprise value payout in the future. Well, Robin, you were the media. Your nickname was the media. So I almost think you have a better answer for this than I do. I was old media in business school. And you know and I know that if this doesn't work out for me, I mean, this is the last stand for me journalistically. I'm just going to open up a Persian food cart and uh, come knocking on your door for some of your uh, crowdfunding money. Just one question. Will you have Juje with the Zeresh, those berries? Juje Kebab with Zeresh Polo, unlimited amounts, unlimited amounts. I'll set up a little shack in Tiburon or Atherton or whatever you like. Well, if you do it uh, and try to be the Chipotle of, of Iranian food, then 
Why should I be the Chipotle Mamoon when I can be the Airbnb or Uber? If I gave you a nickel for every press release that comes to me saying, we're going to be the the Uber of this, uh, the Uber of Jewish dating, the Airbnb of XYZ, sharing economy, millennials, blah, 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 Netflix and chill. I mean, again, it's becoming like it has its own vernacular of cliche. Like I remember being on the brokerage side of it during the, the bubble of 98 to 2000. I mean... You know, people talking about eyeballs and clicks and everything, and now you're talking about unicorns. And gosh, I'm I'm well, worried that this is all going to come crashing down. Well, you know, uh, do you know what a walla is? Like a chai walla, a tobacco walla. You know what that is? No. You know, like okay, so my part of the world. You know, my part of the world. Like you know, a walla is someone who does something. Like a chai walla is like the guy who brings you tea. Don't tell me the, the chai walla was asking you for stock tips. No, no, no. You know, we are in the walla economy. You know, everything that we have in the old country that was a service like the, the the person who does our laundry, the person who brings you your meat and the person who brings your fruits and vegetables. You know, we have DoorDash and Instacart and Wash.io. And, I mean, TaskRabbit. TaskRabbit. I mean, We geez. have the Walla economy. We call it the Walla economy. So anyone from the South, uh, from from the Asian subcontinent is, is very familiar with the Walla and uh, everything Walla. So like... We live in the Walla economy here in Silicon Valley. Where we're backing all these on-demand services that provide um, us, I guess, I guess, lazy people from Silicon Valley. Um, you tell me if, if in Richmond, Virginia, uh, Uber and Lyft and Instacart are as popular as they are over here. I mean, Uber is huge. Airbnb is 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 being thwarted. You know, their hiccups to it. There was a huge international bike race here recently, and a lot of people had trouble. Uh, you know, there was a there, there was a disruption in terms of uh, very limited hotel room availability at affordable prices. And all these people have tons of spare capacity that if you would just allow the market to equilibrate. And I think that's what a lot of the bet is with, you know, the sharing economy, that there's just lots of inventory out there, be it, uh, you know, car riding hours, people who are not gainfully employed. Um, you know, uh, beds that are empty at night, homes that are vacant, and you could actually collect a portion of your rent back. And all these things, if you just think about it across the board in the entire economy, I met I met someone here who has like an on-demand blood service, you know, a, a blood-taking service yeah. uh, for a phlebotomist. And, you know, it's like the Uber for blood-taking. I mean, you're, you're kind of seeing this across the board, and you wonder if at some point these become copycat a kind of issues uh, for people just to get the ear of a venture capitalist and an investment banker. Well, you, you know, you have the Uber for marijuana here. It's called Meadow, and there's one called Ease. There's a couple of them. There's an there's an um, Uber for um, for pharmaceuticals. Mamoon, why the- can't I be the Uber of Thinkfluence? Why can't people just come to me on demand when they need a moderator or they need a a Thinkfluential person to write a LinkedIn post and get paid fifty thousand dollars for it? Why hasn't that come to me yet? Well, that's Why are other people right? getting these gigs and not me? Well, if you could create a two-sided marketplace with superior economics that are gross margin negative, perhaps you could. Uh, say that again? <laughs> well, uh, the, the dirty secret is most of these businesses are pr- still probably gross margin negative. So if you can, if you can come up with an idea that is, has negative gross margins, uh, maybe you will get funded. 
I've been a loss leader my whole life, Mamuna. I don't think I've been a profit center for anything. Nothing. Not my parents to send me to college, you know, to put me through school in the United States. Uh, you know, when I was a brokerage industry flunky or when I was a writer, our magazines were never profitable. And, you know, it kind of dawns on me. I'm almost 40 now and I've never been a profit center in my life, damn it. Which brings me back to the media equation. I mean, when you look at these assets, things like BuzzFeed, things like Vice, um, you know, you wonder about cord cutting and 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 the TV uh, and, and and media and entertainment and everything that the, the cable industry's monopoly of on like kind of the hundred and thirty dollar cable bill and everything. All that is being disrupted so quickly by people who just want HBO Go accounts and Netflix. And there's no allegiance really to any media brand. There isn't. Uh, there's allegiance to the actual content, right? So. Uh, you know, we recently became cord cutters after many years talking about it, but it feels kind of good, Robin. You know, um, I like being able to watch binge watch Master of None on Netflix rather than you know watch it episodically week by week. Uh, it feels pretty good. So, and I think the the juggernaut here really is uh, the content producer, the true original content producer here in Netflix, and I think it probably shows in in its in, in their in their market cap now. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, Vice and Vox and, and BuzzFeed, uh, the question I have is, have they uh, genuinely created a, a new type of uh, content format that is worth so much more than all the other print and online publications that are out there that uh, are valued at perhaps a fraction? And so you tell me, Robin, I don't get the feeling because I'm not impressed that, you know, the ad rates are so high. It's just the buzz factor. I mean, Netflix is great because people are raving about uh, House of Cards and Orange is the New Black and Master of None. You know, the business had some structural difficulties in, in migrating people from DVDs to streaming. And their issues, you know, their bottlenecks in the system, like when everybody wants to binge House of Cards, can Comcast and Verizon throttle them? Again, it comes back to the kind of the audacity of stick to what you do and do it well and worry about those other hiccups and bottlenecks when you have to. Um, you know, I, I really wonder about content. I think that there's just so much of it out there right now. You see an explosion, for example, in podcasts. You're an avid podcast listener. Um, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of content. If all the shows that we wanted to binge watch, we would not have time to even begin that, you know, much less all the other podcasts and magazine articles and Netflix series that we want to see. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm, I'm probably a bit more a fan of less I, I just feel like BuzzFeed and Vox are quite incremental in nature. Uh, something that's a, a bit more unique and differentiated is something like Twitch, which is do you, are you familiar with Twitch? Uh, it's a site uh, where you know gamers watch gamers playing video games. I mean like that's a thing. A lot of people play video games them. It's a uh, you know tens of billions of dollars spent on games, but there's actually lots of time now spent being, uh, watching gamers play video games, and so uh, there's a these are original sources of content that people are spending an inordinate amount of time watching. So esports is another area. Mm. Uh, so so you know I think these are all new paradigms. And again, as as uh, as investors and venture capitalists and technology companies, uh, we have to sort of see where the world is headed. And 
Uh, and, you know, if there's any indication is that the world is headed in different ways where like you and I, even as mid to late 30 year olds are, are kind of clueless about. And so, uh, which requires for someone like me, constant disruption of my thought process. Well, Mamoon, and, I, I believe the children are the future and, you know, teach them well and let them lead the way. And, you know, in the few minutes I have left, I want to take you back to the darling of 1999, which was, I think it was a $200 billion company back then. People are saying it could not stop. It could just take over the world. It could well buy you know, all these old media companies, and it was the paradigm changer, Yahoo, which now, yeah. if you look at it, it obviously has a massive stake. Its crown jewel asset is its, is its stake in Alibaba, the Chinese internet behemoth. Uh, but the core business itself, I mean, there's been a lot written, like today in the Wall Street Journal or recently in Forbes, about Marissa Mayer and all these other pieces she's brought in. And it's just become such a legacy platform. People Google things these days. They don't go to Yahoo for search. Uh, desktop search is not that lucrative of a market anymore. They don't necessarily have mobile figured out. They made some ill-timed investments like in the TV series Community. They pay Katie Couric a lot every year to, <laughs> to, to bring her show onto Yahoo. Um, how do you think this is going to resolve or break up or um, an endgame? Yeah, you know... Uh, there are a number of people who were wishing Marissa well here when she took the job, but uh, we all sort of believe that it was an uh, insurmountable task to turn around Yahoo. You know, uh, the value of the company is zero. Uh, in when you back of, out the Chinese internet company, the actual core company is worth nothing. Nothing. Negative, actually. Um, I think uh, the Alibaba stakes were somewhere around $40 billion. I think the market cap is less than that, so uh, roughly in that ballpark. So... Um, yeah, so the the street's already marketing that business uh, or valuing that business at zero, and um, you know when you you've got a technology company that's that's like declining its revenues and and you know the talent has left the building and Marissa was perhaps the last savior who was going to bring talent back and uh, but that just hasn't happened. It's really hard to turn the ship around into into well one is attracting. Uh, talented people who will help her turn this thing around. It's not just like a few people. You have to create new products and, um, you know, like what are you going to try to monetize Flickr or uh, do a better job monetizing Yahoo Mail, which I guess you're already monetizing. Or I actually still use Yahoo Finance. It's probably the only... That's all that Yahoo. I used as well, Yahoo Finance. But again, what is an online ad worth these days? And again, you know, to say nothing about ad blocking software, uh, which everybody is now worried about. If everybody is indeed watching these things on their phones and tablets, and especially if it's an iOS system, and you can block all these things out, you really have very little leverage as a legacy kind of late to the game online advertising play. Yeah, and I think it's. I guess it's worth of like. Uh, I guess they're still over a billion dollars of revenue a quarter, and um, I think just generate a little bit of net income. But uh, really, the so the question is, what is Marissa going to do with the? Forty billion dollars worth of Alibaba, uh, and is that going to be a last gasp, or is the best answer here to return all that cash in a nice dividend and uh, you know shut down the company? It's like <laughs> what Michael Dell said that Apple should do. I mean, if only you could bring a Steve Jobs to Yahoo. Um, you know, uh, Mamoon, uh, in the in the minute or so we have left, I mean, is there a lesson in that that if we look at the Googles and Facebooks and Apples right now as being kind of or the Amazons, like these four horsemen of tech, as being omnipotent? You know, Facebook after its dud IPO is worth three hundred and five billion dollars. Man, there's no Crazy. way it's gonna it's gonna reach the fate of a Yahoo. But if you think 
back to 99 and 2000, Yahoo was never going to sunset either. Yeah, you know, uh, you look at those those companies, right? You've got Google still run by its founders. You've got Amazon still run by its founder, Jeff Bezos. You've got Facebook still run by its founders. Microsoft not run by its founders, but was not too long ago still run by its founders but bill gates has still some influence perhaps um but but the the unifying theme across all these companies is that you've got some strong founder dna that keeps these companies paranoid and and fresh thinking and uh keeps them going and keeps them growing uh yahoo you lost that you you know one of the david file left probably quite early and then jerry you know when he um went sideways with the board after the Microsoft offer and acquisition. Um, Yahoo has just not had a chance to, to revive itself. So uh, that's if there was one takeaway for technology companies, it's like this creative disruption that happens in Silicon Valley uh, it is really, truly creative, uh, creative and it's disruptive uh, because uh, you, you can't survive if you're not constantly uh, uh, creating new lines of revenue, new lines of business, and you constantly don't protect the, the moat. And if you look at even a Facebook, I mean, man, like that is a juggernaut. I never thought that, you know, when someone once told me like, this is going to be worth a trillion dollars, I'd be like, you're out of your effing mind. And um, it's not, this thing could be worth a trillion dollars. At the, still, it's still growing. It's still like people are using it more than ever. And uh, we were told like, uh, like years ago that Facebook is only for old people. Uh, but if you look at the the activity level of the of the number of people who come back uh, uh, once a month, uh, uh, or there's 65% of people who uh, go to the site every month, 65% are actually daily active users of the product, which is a kind of a crazy statistic. It's kind of like a daily habit for like 65% of wait, people. Wait, 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 wait for it. I have a tagline that we can attach to this case study. Um, um, innovate or die. How does that sound? That is so good, Robin. And it's that so is, original. Mamoon Hamid, Star VC. Thank you for lending us your Thinkfluence, sir. Thank you, Robin. It's such an honor and a pleasure <laughs> to be on your show. The pleasure is all mine. Full disclosure, we are on NPR One. Download it. It pairs beautifully with Bluetooth. Enjoy us as well on WRIR, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And coming soon to both Hooli and Grinder. <laughs> Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Take no object. Take no object.